Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Zachary Rissler and today I'm joined by Mike Pratt. And we're going to talk about an article called The Point of Care Ultrasound Abnormalities in Late Onset Severe Preeclampsia Prevalence and Association with Serum Albumin and Brain Natriuretic Peptide. So this was from the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. It was an e-publication in September 2018. Uh, The authors were from Austria and South Africa, um, also from the University of Washington. So this article really goes into preeclampsia and talks about the use of ultrasound. Preeclampsia, you know, is obviously a very severe disease. Uh, It's hypertensive disorder occurring in pregnancy. It can result in multiple organ dysfunction. And unbeknownst to me and Mike before reading this article, a point of care ultrasound has been used around the world uh, to find some of the manifestations of severe preeclampsia. So for example, preeclampsia can cause pulmonary edema, which we already know shows up really well on lung ultrasound. Point of care ultrasound can also be used to show increased optic nerve sheath diameter. Uh, And in these women with increased cerebral edema from preeclampsia, ultrasound could be helpful. So apparently, uh, one suggested pathophysiology of these changes is low albumin, Uh, leading to low oncotic pressure. Right. So it sounds like what these authors were trying to do was a few things. First, they wanted to connect point-of-care ultrasound to preeclampsia and kind of see how often are these findings going to show up if you were to ultrasound everyone with severe preeclampsia, meaning they have the on the worse end of the spectrum some of these signs of organ dysfunction. And so they first wanted to see if they were to ultrasound all these patients, how often do those show up? And then secondly, they wanted to test this hypothesis that the etiology of those causes, specifically the increased intracranial pressure and the pulmonary edema, came from having a low serum albumin. That is kind of one of the existing theories of the pathophysiology of these changes. So they wanted to try to correlate that in these patients with their serum albumin. And then they also did some things with a BNP, They wanted to see if that correlated with the heart dysfunction. So all of that in the name of kind of hoping to find a better way to diagnose these patients with severe preeclampsia. So Zach, why don't you tell us how they actually performed this study? Sure. So the inclusion criteria for this study were uh, patients that were greater than 34 weeks gestation um, and had preeclampsia with severe features. So they used the Royal College of obstetrics definition, which is slightly different than the ACOG definition. And they basically wanted to enroll patients that had blood pressure greater than 160 over 110, thrombocytopenia, elevated liver function tests or liver pain, renal insufficiency, pulmonary edema, cerebral or visual disturbances. Um, Some exclusions were patients that were in labor, unable to understand the study, or patients with chronic pulmonary disease, HIV, collagen disorders, lithium intoxication, chronic renal or hepatic disease, UTIs, chorioamnitis, intrauterine fetal death, or BMI greater than 50, or acute asthma. So the patients that were diagnosed with preeclampsia with severe features were enrolled, all received obstetric ultrasound, mag sulfate, fluid restrictions, blood pressure management, all had fetal monitoring, and 
As part of the study, they all received BNPs and albumin. Then the patients received their point-of-care ultrasound, so they received a cardiac, lung, and optic nerve sheath diameter ultrasounds, and they were defined as positive or negative based on the definitions that we're going to talk about now. So these findings were analyzed to look for associations between the serum tests, so the albumin and the BNP, and the ultrasound findings, as well as some clinical features. Because of the large number of comparisons, they adjusted the statistical significance level to 0.025, and this is a pretty normal thing to do in some studies. So they had a power analysis, and they needed 80 patients to find a difference in the albumin uh, with or without point-of-care findings. Ultrasounds were done by two study investigators who were not involved in patient care, So let's talk about the studies that they did. So they did a cardiac and a lung study, both using a phased array transducer. The lung study, they did an eight-region study looking at two anterior, two lateral um, studies on both sides for a total of eight regions. And they were looking for pulmonary interstitial syndrome, which they diagnosed if there were greater than three B-lines in two regions on both sides. And they were also given a score equaling the total number of B-lines in all windows. So for the cardiac, they placed all the patients in left lateral decubitus, and they used the quinones method for left ventricular systolic function. Uh, They also used eyeballing and fractional shortening to look at ejection fraction. They also looked at diastolic function using the mitral valve inflow or pulse wave Doppler and tissue Doppler of the mitral valve annulus, and they defined dysfunction as a low E prime. And they calculated left ventricular end diastolic pressure defined as an E over E prime less than 8 or between 9 and 13 if they had a BNP greater than 200. They also then looked at the optic nerve sheath diameter. In this case, they used the linear transducer. They had the patient supine, the head of the bed elevated to 30 degrees. They measured the nerve sheath in both transverse and sagittal planes in both eyes And then they took the mean of all four measurements, and they defined increased ICP if the optic nerve sheath diameter was greater than 5.8 millimeters. Mike, do you want to talk about the results? Yeah. Now, Zach, first, a couple things jump out at me based on what you just said about how they did these ultrasounds. First, whenever we talk about lung ultrasound, the question is always, how much of the lung do they look at? Because we know the more areas of the lung you scan, the more sensitive you're gonna be for pathology. In this case, eight regions, that's pretty good to me. Second, cardiac ultrasound, they're doing some pretty advanced stuff here. They're doing some diastology, calculating the E to E prime ratios on everybody, and that's not something that everyone may be able to perform. Lastly, for optic nerve sheath diameter, they used a cutoff of 5.8 millimeters. A lot of times we use a cutoff of 5, trying to get a little more sensitive. So just keep that in mind as you're trying to compare the results of this study to what you might actually do. I thought it was also interesting that they used the mean of the four measurements to define their final measurement. I don't think I've seen this done much in studies about optic nerve sheath diameter, but I'm also not an expert on it. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, uh, presumably, that would be the best way to go, always taking a mean of many different measurements as long as it's not a dynamic process. Yeah, agreed. So remember, for their power analysis, they needed 80 patients. So let's talk about the results. They ended up screening a little over 200 patients, and then they ended up getting a total of 95. What actually happened was they got 80 
but then they weren't able to get some of those advanced cardiac measurements on 15 of them, so they enrolled another 15 just to do that. The main things they ended up excluding people for were these comorbidities. So HIV was about 40 people excluded. Patients that were in labor were also excluded and then ones that were earlier in their pregnancy. And that's an important exclusion criteria there because preeclampsia can certainly occur prior to 34 weeks. This paper only focuses on late-term preeclampsia. So taking a look at those patients, the mean gestation was 39 weeks, so these are really late in their pregnancy. Most of the time, the features that qualified them as severe preeclampsia were their hypertension, headache, and visual disturbances. Now, the other one was severe proteinuria, which actually isn't in the American guidelines, but is in the uh, Royal College guidelines. So their primary outcome, do these point-of-care ultrasound findings correlate with the serum albumin? Answer, no, they don't. Let's move on. Secondary outcomes, is there any association between serum albumin and any type of cardiac dysfunction? No, not really. We don't really care about this stuff too much. I mean, it's, it's theoretically interesting if you're trying to figure out the pathophysiology, but I think for the sake of this podcast, we're looking more for what's going to affect our clinical use of point-of-care ultrasound. So let's get down to the meat of that. The question was, how often do you see point-of-care ultrasound findings in severe preeclampsia? And the answer to that is that 59% of these patients had at least one ultrasound abnormality. 59%, that's pretty high. And then 36% had only one abnormality, 23 had two or greater. And of those findings, Zach, what would you hazard a guess to be the most prevalent in this population? So since I read the study, I know the answer, but (laughs) before uh, reading the study, I would have thought that most women would have some level of pulmonary interstitial syndrome, even if they didn't have symptoms of this. Yeah, I kind of thought that would be the case too, especially because it's a spectrum of disease. You know, some people with chronic lung disease can have a, a beeline here or there. And so it's easy to conceive if you're having all these uh, systemic processes that occur in severe preeclampsia that maybe they would develop some beelines. But actually, the most common finding was diastolic dysfunction, clocking at 33% of their patients. After that, increased optic nerve sheath diameter was 28%, pulmonary interstitial syndrome 24%, uh, and then systolic dysfunction 10%. So the diastolic dysfunction was more common than all those other findings. And I should have said that a raised left ventricular end diastolic pressure, that was 25%. So that was high up there as well. So other findings that they mentioned was that the point of care ultrasound findings of cardiac dysfunction correlated with a serum BNP. So that's kind of something that's been studied in the past. But for those BNP haters out there, The BNP was only 50 to 57% sensitive for cardiac dysfunction, and the specificity was only as high as 84%. So not a great test if you're trying to diagnose heart failure in these preeclamptic women. There was also no association between having a positive point-of-care ultrasound and having any abnormalities on the fetal monitoring. So Zach, let's get into some of the limitations here. The main one is that these patients were all enrolled in South Africa, and I think that although this sounds like a really great center, we always have to be a little suspicious that the practices there 
and specifically the patients there are the same as ones that we're seeing in the States. Yeah, they also had a lot of exclusion criteria. So understandably, they want to focus on the point of care ultrasound and how it affects most women, but they really excluded a lot of people, including patients with urinary infections that could really make this not the most generalizable study. I agree with you there as well. Now, one thing that was also a little confusing to me reading through the study was all this stuff with albumin and BNP, because it seemed to me that they were trying to do kind of a circular argument. They were trying to say, well, I think that point-of-care ultrasound will show up in preeclampsia because the albumin will be low, and I think that the albumin will be low causing people to have these findings on point-of-care ultrasound. And so it wasn't clear to me at first which one they were actually trying to prove, whether they would have point-of-care ultrasound positive or whether they would have serum abnormalities. And so that made it a little bit uh, difficult to interpret the results because they reported all of these associations. And it seemed from their introduction that the existing evidence was that all of these are still theoretical. So there's not been a lot on how to use point-of-care ultrasound in preeclampsia, and there's not been a lot proving that albumin would change in severe preeclampsia. So I think ultimately what this paper aimed to do was they were just assuming that point-of-care ultrasound was going to be positive, and they were trying to find out if that correlated with the albumin as an explanation for why it was positive. Yeah, I think this is like a fact-finding mission to see if they could find what um, abnormalities are seen on point-of-care ultrasound, and then maybe look back and say if these have important findings for the women going forward. Right. I think that's a that's what we're trying to do here. What are we going to do with this information? How do we use it and apply it to our clinical practice? For me, it's saying merely that you can use ultrasound in severe preeclampsia and you might have some findings. That's pretty much it. I don't know how accurate it is for it. I don't know exactly how sensitive it's going to be for these diagnoses or how specific it's going to be. But now I know at least that this is a tool that might be able to help me in this population. And so I think just points to more studies needing to be done. Yeah. And I would also like to see the study done in earlier preeclampsia to see if there are any things we can find early on to change management later for healthier pregnancies. Exactly. That's a great point because perhaps more impact would be able to be had early on in the course. All right, well, let me summarize this study. This was a prospective study. Patients were enrolled in South Africa if they had severe preeclampsia and were greater than 34 weeks gestation. They ended up having 95 patients to analyze. Their main findings related to point-of-care ultrasound were that 33% of their patients had diastolic dysfunction, 28% had an increased optic nerve sheath diameter, and a good amount of the rest had findings such as pulmonary interstitial syndrome, raised left ventricular end diastolic pressure, and systolic dysfunction. Their other findings are that these point-of-care ultrasound findings did not seem to correlate with a mean serum albumin level significantly. So take-home points from this article are that point-of-care ultrasound can diagnose pulmonary interstitial fluid, increased optic nerve sheath diameter, and cardiac dysfunction in patients with late-onset preeclampsia. And in this study, again, 
59% of their patients had at least one point of care ultrasound abnormality. So I think that this study just points to the fact that we need uh, more studies to tell us how we can use point of care ultrasound in this population to actually change our diagnostic or management strategies. I want to thank the authors for performing this study. Really interesting stuff here. And I want to thank you for listening to us. We really appreciate it. Feel free to check out our website, ultrasoundgel.org, or you can check us out on Facebook or Google+, or talk to us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We'll talk to you later. More. 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 More.